Wins all around. Hey. And we're like kind of on time. How about that? You know why? Because we are the home of professional podcasts. We're taking that seriously. Mm-hmm. Starting now. Oh, shoot. My glasses are going to do the purple thing today. <laughs> and you can see my giant pimple. Because <laughs> I'm 12 years old, apparently, again. Well, I didn't notice it until you pointed it That's out. That's usually so. what I do. Well, point, there out, you go. point out all my flaws. That's welcome. That's a good time. Welcome so. to the home of flaws. <laughs> that was my nickname in high school. The home of flaws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. How yes, are indeed. You? I I am doing just dandy. It's a gorgeous day outside. It is a nice day. It's already a little on the warm side for me. Once it gets over seventy five, I get a little bit cranky. The but last two days were really nice. Yeah, it's been gorgeous. I, I love it. You know, and the thing of it is, I, it was. Uh, talking to somebody the other day, um, <laughs> God is good all the time. On days that beautiful, it's easy to remember it. Mm-hmm. On some days, it's harder to remember it. And that's that's really such a big thing for us to, to keep our minds focused and to remember and embrace the reality of Christ, not, not the religion of I'm, I'm going to muster up thoughts and so on that you right. know so that I can find something that works but to recognize that Jesus is reality and to embrace that reality and when we do when we embrace that reality it moves us to action that reflects Christ and that's really the whole point of what we were talking about it's the whole point of what we see in the book of acts that these believers in the early church um they weren't Christians the way we think of Christians in this cultural, religious, um, popular kind of thing uh, where everybody, I think we might have lost, lost YouTube for a second, but um, when, we, when we see this cultural Christianity that is, uh, for the last you know, 1,500 years, uh, has become affiliated with mainstream culture in, mm-hmm. in the Western world in particular, uh, that's that's not what, what they're dealing with. That's not what they're thinking about. That's not how they're living their lives. They simply recognize there is a reality and I need to get on board with that reality. And because I recognize that, that the reality of God is ultimate, that underlies everything. And Within that reality of God, I recognize He's holy and I'm not. My, my sin separates me from God. And therefore, I am in a very desperate situation because sure. I can't fix that with religion. He's right. not appeased like the, the tribal gods of the pagan uh, nations. He's not appeased by uh, silly human sacrifices that, that seem like such a, a big deal to us but are so paltry compared to the God who created everything from nothing. And so God himself says that, do I need the blood of rams and, and bulls? Are you serious? That, that, am I a God who's interested in that stuff? I'm interested in your whole life. And so when we see our separation from God and the fact that God, who is the offended party, he is the aggrieved one, We've sinned against him, and yet he loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place while we were still his enemies, while we were still still sinners. I mean, imagine all of the folks that are, that are protesting and going crazy over police brutality to instead say, I want to redeem 
this vile individual who who has wrongly killed someone else. I want to step into that void and I'm going to lay my life down, not for the George Floyd, but for the for the officer who, I won't mention his name, but for the officer who took his life. I don't want to give fame to someone who, who did that, but I'm going to step into that gap. That's what Jesus did for us. Mm-hmm. And so in the early church, they get that. The, the Holy Spirit has now opened their eyes, the eyes of their heart, and they're able to, to see what they could never see before. And so they respond from the very beginning in Acts 2, what must we do to be saved? Mm-hmm. And that whole perspective, that grasping and embracing the reality of Christ shifts everything. And it can't be, it just it, it's just the ontological nature of it. It can't be this passive, casual Christianity that it is, you know, we have this consumer mentality. We, we go to church for what we can get out of it. They have no thing like that at all on their radar. It's, oh my gosh, I was dead and now I'm alive and I have to live in the middle of that truth he died for me, therefore, how can I do anything else but live for him? And that moved them and changed them. And so we see in this in this transition, we're, we're looking at Acts chapter 11, the, the end of the chapter, the last, uh, it was like 19 to 30, I think it was. Um, I should know that since I've reached it. But uh, as they're going through this segment, this passage, it's sort of a, an aside, a fast-forwarding kind of transition Here's what's going on. We have this recalibration to understand that the Gentiles have been brought in. And ultimately, what makes the recalibration is that God had always wanted the Gentiles to be brought in. Mm-hmm. And now Christ has accomplished what Israel did not, not effectively. And so as, as they see things differently, now we, we jump from that to a, a recurrence of persecution in chapter 12. That's where we'll be heading. But... They're in this time of peaceful growth. There's a sort of shalom in the church where we're um, with Saul being converted to Christ, the persecution is dramatically died down. I'm sure there was still some uh, in, in various uh, places and settings, but that's the home of professional podcasting when we don't turn off our phones. You're just popular. <clears throat> um, and so as that whole thing plays out, we kind of fast forward, here's what happened in between. So we have this, and after this persecution, after the people are scattered, they go around to the different cities, uh, but they're they're still only talking to Jews. They're, they're, they're sharing the gospel to the inner circle, to the folks they're connected with. Except there are some people who are not from Jerusalem, from Cyprus and Cyrene, and, and they went and settled in Antioch, and they end up speaking to the Hellenists, to the Greeks, who are outside of that, that Jewish culture. They're outside of the Jewish religion. They're not thinking the same way. And they're presenting truth now to these outsiders, to these Gentiles. And so that takes hold. And we're seeing it. The, we've stepped out of chronology to be able to catch up the chronology. And so they're, they're in the shadow of what happened uh, with Peter and the church and, and the vision that, that says the, the Gentiles have been brought in. So then as they do this, the believers who, who are going around to these various places, running away from persecution cannot imagine not telling other people about the reality of Christ. And in the process, they're demonstrating the reality of Christ. When they have a famine come up, it's not the leaders pushing the people to come up, let's take up a collection and go help these people. It's the lay people saying, we have brothers and sisters back in Judea 
who are, are going to be really hurting because of this famine. Let's give what we have. Now, it's a it's a not a global famine, but uh, but it's a worldwide from the Roman perspective famine mm-hmm. throughout the empire. There's this famine going on. And the people who are taking up the collection are also being hit by this. It's sort of like our pandemic right now. Everybody is affected by it. And as you are affected by it, the Christians here are saying, it doesn't matter what happens to us. We need to help take care of others. So their faith, their their recognition, their embracing of the gospel of Christ, they're seeing everything in life through the lens of the good news. And therefore, the logical response that they have is to, to make their own lives a living sacrifice. I'm going to actively love my brothers and sisters. I'm going to step into this need. Even if I have to sacrifice, that's cool. It's whatever. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to take care of my brothers and sisters. So it's pretty awesome to see, you know, we want the title kinetic impact because that's really what happens. They're impacted by the gospel and it, it creates a, like, like Newton's cradle when you drop the ball on the one end and it, and it moves that energy through and, and changes what was potential stored energy into kinetic energy by moving the ball on the other end. That same kind of impact happens by what Christ did for us, now impacting us with the Holy Spirit that is moving us into an active, kinetic, doing kind of faith because we get that reality and we can't see it any other way. You mentioned something a minute ago about, uh, you know, the the process of going to church and and seeing what you can get out of it or or seeing what you can get out of religion or Christianity in general. Mm -hmm. And from an earthly standpoint, looking at these chapters, or looking at these uh, sections of the chapter, um, from an earthly standpoint, they really had nothing to gain, but -hmm. they were looking at long-term here. Um, And I think it's very easy to get that twisted because I think people are naturally greedy and selfish, and right, we do yeah. think, "What can Absolutely. I? What can I get out of this right now?" Hmm. Um, or you know, as soon as possible, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I've got my little short window here, and that's all I can see half the time is right. you know what's going on with me here. Um, so I, I guess my my thought process or even my question is, without without seeing and experiencing directly what these people did, Mm -hmm. do you think that we are at a disadvantage because maybe it's easier for us to misinterpret things than they did if they, you know, they're right in the thick of it. And when we read the Gospels and see this, I think we've talked about this before about, you know, picking out things or trying to find our own interpretation of things. So... That's a little scary to me that I, I don't want to find false motivation to do to, to go out and, and share this. I don't want to like like I'll picture my life as like a, one of the, one of those mega churches, okay? For for lack of a better example, and I get all fired up because something sounds good, or there's a particular line or a particular uh, passage that really just gets me going, and I'm like yeah, but maybe it's been twisted in a way that's not quite accurate. So I then go out because I'm excited okay. about that. In the emotion. Of yeah. It. Okay. So is that wrong? <laughs> I mean, because that's the energy that I'm getting from from the word. Maybe it's not exactly what it means. Um, I, I guess I feel like there's a danger in that. 
in, in, so what is the way, this has been a really long question. What is a way that we can make sure that we're getting it right to, because I feel like when we're, when we're pushing that out there and we're reflecting Christ and we want to, to share the gospel and, and share the news of Christ with others, it's so important to get it right. And I think people get it wrong so often that that's one of the reasons why Christians get such a bad rep. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's I'm, easy I'm not to get, entirely it's, sure if I follow you correctly. It's easy to so. get fired up about things. Right. Right? Like, if you gave a really good sermon if on that Sunday. Happens, if we'll, that would yeah, ever happen. Right. No. Um, and, I, and I left church on Sunday and I was like, yeah. But maybe there was something in your sermon. This, this has not happened. Maybe there was something in your sermon that wasn't really in line with what the Bible actually said. Maybe it was your own opinion, which you don't do. Uh, but some people do. And I got really fired up about that. And so I shared that with somebody else. Mm. But it wasn't correct. Mm. So how can we ensure that we are getting this right? If we're so you're gonna, talking about the gonna, actual preaching of the word. The, if the we're, declaration that they're... As they're going about sharing the gospel, that's what you're focusing if we're on. T- or, or just living. If we're, if we're supposed to live like Christ. Sure. Oh, okay, let's use the, since we're in Pride Month, let's use the LGBT mm-hmm. thing. If we're supposed to live like Christ, this person could say Jesus, lo- say, Jesus loved everybody. Mm-hmm. True. Uh, but some, some would argue with, with that based on... Well, that's what I'm saying. Some would, some would sure, argue. Yeah. So how can we do the right thing how can we truly be mm-hmm. fired up about it be like wow i've got to live like christ i've got to be like christ i was dead now i'm alive i've got to do this yeah. but how can we ensure that we're doing it right so if i understand your question correctly it took I, up entirely too I much time i think I, I think the answer comes easier than the question okay i hope if, so because that was a tough if one. i understand what what you're asking so what they're doing in in acts 11 is being changed by Christ. Right. They're changing their own lives in alignment with that. And I don't honestly, I don't know that we could make the strongest case that that they're actively, consciously here striving to be like Christ. It just follows. It flows. That doesn't mean it continues that way because much of the New Testament is written to, as a corrective to say what you're doing isn't right, so get right. Which is part of what I think is the answer to your question. If we can't get it wrong when we are rooted in the actual text of the scripture, and where the things that that you brought up, the examples you brought up, as far as LGBTQ, did you bring up another one? So other other areas where, like, we're in a, a prosperity church or popular right. kind of thing where we have a compelling message that is good. inaccurate. Right. And the way to avoid that is sound doctrine, uh, strong hermeneutics. We have a historical grammatical understanding of the text. We interpret the text based on a what it says and b what's happening when it's written. So we don't. Uh, this is what a literalist uh, or a, a uh, originalist um, Supreme Court judge would do. I'm going to look at the Constitution for what it says, understanding the historical context at the time, not what I think it should say, but what does it actually say. And to understand what it actually says, I have to understand the language that's being used mm-hmm. because in, 
1789. They didn't speak the same way we do in 2020. And I have to understand the, the cultural milieu, what's, what, what's going on there, what, how are they thinking. So, for example, um, it, you know, when we're talking about the Second Amendment, that's a, a popular thing to debate. So we're talking about the Second Amendment. We can't, from a, an originalist, or if we're to take that to the Bible, a historical, grammatical, uh, hermeneutic, <clears throat> we don't... Um, we don't look at what we think it should say. We don't look through the lens of 2020. We look at what it does say and try as best we can to get back to the lens of 1789. And then once we get the right interpretation of what that actually is saying, then we can apply that. How does that principle, as understood by those who wrote it, how would that then later apply? So as we interpret the scripture, we have to look at, the book of Acts, the book of Romans, the book of Leviticus, whatever it is that we're reading, not from our contemporary eyes saying, okay, so this, um, in, in my current events, I'm going to then read that into the scripture. We, we call that eisegesis, reading it into rather than drawing from. And that changes, that lets my framework of how I think determine what I believe the text says. Mm. That's inevitably going to get us off on human-centered tangents rather than keeping us anchored to the word. When we allow our emotions to overwhelm what the Bible actually says, then whether we get it right or wrong, and I think this is uh, kind of speaks to that getting fired up about a particular aspect of, of what's in a sermon. When we... Um, when we let our emotions take over and, and kind of trump the text, then even if we get it right, it tends to be short-lived that, that you know it's a fast-burning wick that goes out quickly. And we don't have a... a we might have a, an immediate swelling uh, of emotion, but then once that emotion goes away, it's kind of like a pep talk at a, at a ball game. Coach gets the team all right. fired up, right. rah, rah, right. rah, and you get out on the field, and first thing happens, first hit of the football game, and, and you're pow, deflated. You're right. done, right. Uh, like the great theologian Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Well, I get it. But that's what happens to us when we have these emotional sermons, we get fired up. So what we see here is not that in fact it's the opposite of that they're not fired up because of the preaching they're not caught up in the emotion in fact they're actually running for their lives out of jerusalem okay they're trying to kill us let's get out and as they get out the foundation of the reality of christ that with their understanding of what uh, you know from their childhood of, of understanding the old testament and growing up with that uh, to now the gospel that has been presented to them and understanding Christ as the fullness, the completion of what they had always grown up with in the Old Testament law. Now that becomes essential, foundational to them. It's more than an emotional thing. To make that for us today, we have to, and I think this is the great failing of the contemporary evangelical church, we have to, we must be diligent and hungry and passionate and fastidious about the the what we often consider tedious and boring work 
of learning the scripture and understanding what does it say and how do how do I look at the principles of what it says through scriptural eyes and then apply it here. And when we begin to, to look at it with a right hermeneutic, this is why it's so important to be involved in a Bible teaching church as opposed to just a dynamic church. Mm. We need to be able to, to, to have so much Bible in us that whatever we see in our current world, we see through the eyes of the Bible rather than seeing the Bible through the eyes of the world. I think this particular passage is a good example of that because if I were to just read this little section that we covered on Sunday and not have any other background information about it, I would think, wow, this was just some sudden miraculous thing. They all just were changed and and felt this way. And... To know that's not necessarily the case, and this was and this was actually going on, and this was what drove that. Um, I think you know that's in this section when we first when you we first started talking about it last week, and you're like, yeah, it's kind of like a transitional type thing or a time skip or something like that. I thought, well, is that really important? Mm. But it is because you look at the context before and. Can I confess to you? I felt the same way as I began to preach it. As a as I'm looking at it. I have to remind myself regularly, and this is this is the responsibility of the preacher. You have to remind yourself regularly that every word of Scripture is inspired by God, it's breathed out by God, and is useful. He's intended this for us, for teaching and correction, rebuking and instruction, and righteousness. We need to we need to be able to see the Word as God sees the Word. You know, I don't mean we need to have. You know, right, that infinite right. mind, but we need to have the divine mind of Christ so that we are looking at the scripture and understanding that the begats are there for a reason. Well, when right. we see the genealogies, it's not an accident. God didn't just throw this in so we skip over that part. We don't skip any part. Now, not every word is instructive in the same way. Right. So there are different purposes for it, different genres as we look at at Revelation. I don't read Revelation the same way I read Acts. I don't read the Psalms the same way I read Romans. Different genres impact how we see that. So in a natural reading of the text, <clears throat> understanding the the type of literature, the historical context, the the mm. geographical context, the the purpose and intent of the author as we as we see that. And some of them are easy, like Luke in his gospel and in the book of Acts. He tells us why we're doing it. Right. So, okay, I can see what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, others, we have to work a little harder to see what the purpose of it is. And and it takes some some actual legwork to, to put study in. And we, too often in the evangelical church today, and uh, to say nothing of those outside of the evangelical church, that's a, another question, but for those of us who have ostensibly a high view of scripture. We believe that the word of God is authoritative and infallible and inerrant. We don't really believe it or we would care more about it. And we would say, you know what? It's time for me to turn off that show I'm binge watching and spend a little more time looking at the scripture. If we spent a 10th as much time actually studying the scripture, working on trying, and I don't mean just reading through it you know this morning for part of my devotional time I was I was listening to the audio of of the first 10 psalms and so you know I'm doing it but and I'm taking it in and it's good and it's devotional in many ways but it's not the diligent study of sitting down and mm-hmm. saying okay mm-hmm. who's writing this 
Why is David saying what he's saying? How does this apply? What's, what setting is he writing this in? Who's reading it? Why, why is this included in Scripture? That is another level of study that we don't generally put in. And we need to, not just the preacher, but the layperson hearing the sermons needs to put in that kind of work and needs to hold the te- pastor teacher accountable to say, well, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like opinion. That sounds like you know, you're right. getting very American in what right. you're saying here as opposed to looking at it through ancient Near Eastern eyes or you know, being able to, to take what the scripture says from the people writing it to the people reading it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then say, okay, from this, what Luke is writing to this largely Gentile audience about this Jewish Messiah, it, it means a very specific thing in a very specific setting for a very specific people. And we, we too often fall into the temptation of reading the word saying, I'm going to get something from this. I'm going to, I'm going to find inspiration and so on. But he didn't write that to me. Mm-hmm. He didn't write this thinking about, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in Three Oaks, Michigan in 2020 at, at Real Life Community Church. None of those things existed yet. No, there's, that's not even on his radar. Right. So if I look at it as if he's writing it to me, I'm going to be in trouble. So we need to follow kind of traveling instructions. There's no direct flight from the author of the scripture to to my setting right now. I have to take connecting flights. I have to see what did the author write to his intended audience? What what was the main idea there? What did he intend for them to do in response to that? And then draw from that the principles that I can apply now. And when we begin to look at things through a proper interpretive principle, we call it hermeneutics, and and we understand that there is only one right interpretation, and there are many, countless applications of that interpretation, then we have to diligently pursue not what I think God says, not what I believe God would do, or what this should say in the text, because clearly the Bible's out of date, right? So well, right, you know, and that's the that's what you'll get out of it if that's what you're thinking going into it. Right. Well, these these don't apply now. Right, and that's when I start doing eisegesis, reading into the right. text rather than exegesis, drawing from and breaking down the text. And if I'm going to have a proper hermeneutic, a proper interpretation of it, then I need to have a diligent, faithful, and intellectually honest exegesis in breaking down the text, seeing what does it say, why does it say it, how does it say it, how is it included here, how does it connect to the other parts of Scripture. And and that's where biblical theology comes in. We look at the Scripture and interpret Scripture by Scripture. So when I'm reading Acts, I have to also be familiar with what's leading up to Acts. I can't read the book of Acts without reading the book of Luke. I can't understand the the uh, Paul's letter to the Romans rightly if I don't understand the book of Acts and what happens in Paul's life to get him to that place. I can't understand the book of Romans if I haven't looked at the Old Testament because there's so much in there that relates to... I've got notifications going crazy, I know, I was, right? I don't I've, know what's going I've on. I've never had so many notifications <laughs> on my computer. So uh, as, as we look at the whole of Scripture, that keeps us on track. And you'll invariably see that and going back to the LGBTQ stuff, 
invariably, when you see folks, um, I'm going to say playing fast and loose with the scripture, you mm-hmm. know, this this applies, this doesn't apply, Jesus didn't talk about this, you know, and so on. Inevitably, invariably, inescapably, and other inwards I'm not thinking of right now, those folks are approaching the scripture from a more eisegetical perspective than exegetical perspective. They're not taking the text in a historical grammatical uh, way. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're sometimes being over literal in in where the genre does not uh, mandate that. So if you're talking about apocalyptic literature, po- literature poetry, that's not intended to be taken literally. It, the the Bible obviously can't be trusted because you know the lover in Song of Solomon says that his beloved's uh, face is made up of pomegranates and sheep, you know. Well, it's poetry, which, again, Near Eastern poetry, a little bit different than, than romantic, enlightenment yeah, poetry. It's not, you know, Elizabeth you know, Barrett Brown. But. Uh, but, as you're, but as you're looking at it, you have to take into account what it is, not what you want it to be, not what you want it to say. I didn't write it. I don't get to determine what I wanted to say. I think that's the core of answering my long-winded question. With a long-winded answer. So. <laughs> I, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's the base. That's that's the bottom line. Is you have to get into it. You, you have do. to study it. Yeah, it's and I, I think a... that again is one of the great failings. I would say the great failing of the contemporary evangelical church. Uh, we can talk about social justice and so on. I think we have not been guilty of not engaging in social work and social justice. We have been guilty of not engaging with the word Hmm. at an appropriate level that would drive our social justice. So then we have now, we have even the term social justice, I I can't stand. Justice is justice. And we've created all these soft categories and and, and soft thinking ideas. And so now we have an evangelical statement that a bunch of people have signed on social justice. We... We have people promoting a social justice gospel. Um, there are so many people who have moved toward. I remember years ago, uh, and this has been, you know, early '90s probably. Um, reading from Tony Campolo, who was a, a tremendously prominent um, writer and, and teacher in the '80s and '90s, and uh, maybe less so today, but still prominent on the scene. I just saw a, a, some one of the streaming channels is putting out a movie about his son leaving the faith. Mm. Uh, they were partners in ministry, and now he doesn't believe in, in God. Anyway, um, trying not to digress, Tony Campolo back then was promoting uh, a doing sort of gospel, coming from a, a, a Baptist background. It was surprising to me uh, to see him go this way, and he would still use words that would indicate salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But promoting, if you want your youth group to come to Christ, it's not preaching and teaching that makes a difference. You need to get them out serving. Take them out into the community and have them do social justice type work. I don't think he used those terms at the time. Go out and do these things and that will change them. Well, that's just a seriously flawed perspective and not at all the order of operations that we see, to use mathematical terms, in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures always, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, all the way through, what we always see is the indicative 
leading to the imperative, not the other way around. But they do always go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So we have had many times in the church when we have separated them, and we have, when I say indicative and imperative, I mean our position, who we are, drives what we do, our mm -hmm. practice. So if we, and you know, I've said before, the book of Ephesians is a clear and obvious uh, case of that. It's, it's not where we find that as, as an argument, but, uh, but it is just laid out so completely along those lines. The first three chapters are, here's who you are in Christ. The last three chapters are, here's what you do about who you are in Christ. Right. Here's what that looks like. But that's the same thing for Israel. God calls Israel, I choose you, you are mine, and because I choose you, here's how you live. He doesn't say the same thing to the Gentiles. It's not that the Gentiles shouldn't still live that way, but what mattered was the relationship. What mattered first and foremost was, you are mine, so I'm calling you out, I am making you holy, and now live according to my laws. Same thing with the Christ follower. The, the issue is not the doing. We're not working to try and obtain God's favor. We're not working to try to make the world a better place. That's a humanist argument. And, and capital L, liberal from you know, pre-World War I, which should have been destroyed and, and largely was after World War I, if we deal with poverty, if we deal with education, if we fix the inequities here, then we'll usher in the kingdom of God, the millennial age will come, everything will be glorious and wonderful because people are basically good. Absolutely not what the Bible teaches. And, and in reality, we saw that play out because the war to end all wars was the most horrific, brutal thing ever and led into the century of the most wars ever, mm -hmm. the, the deadliest century we've had. So the better education we have, I believe it was Lewis that said that with the, and I could be wrong about that, but uh, I think it was Lewis that said that, that getting more education basically just creates more clever devils. Mm -hmm. You know, we've, we create smarter evil you know so right, right. we use technology right. to create the internet right. and the first thing you have pop up out of that with all the good things is then pornography and sex trafficking and, and scams and schemes and princes in africa supposedly you know we're going to get all the, your money out of you and hacking and right. and all these different things uh even stuff you know it's just a better form of gossip Instead right. of having cyberbullying, you've got all these things that happen. Right. The technology isn't bad. Right. It's not the technology's fault. It's the people. We're bad. Right. We are sinful. So when we grasp and embrace the reality of Christ, it yanks us from ourselves. Mm -hmm. He has changed us. It's not getting, you know, oh, I understand it. So now I can, you know, in my own strength, because I'm a, a good human, I can do better things. Right. It requires what the Old Testament especially calls the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. I have to be broken. I have to recognize everything about me is depraved. And this is where the secularist or the humanist would, would really part company from us. That's the wrong motive for morals, they would say. Well, the Bible says you are separated from a holy God and you are dead in your sin. If you want the world to be what you want the world to be, as far as good things, then you have to recognize you're incapable of creating that world. And you will die in your sin. You will inevitably keep going that way. So our sinful hearts don't even want God. Right. We want the benefits of God. We just don't want God. Christ comes in, enters into our wickedness, doesn't wait for us to fix it, snatches us out of the fire that we set, 
And against our will, in some ways, and, and don't take that too far. Don't right. email me about this, you know, unless you have legitimate questions. You know, it, our sinful will is against God. He comes in and against that will grabs us and says, I'm going to change your will. So that we don't come to Christ against our will, but we do receive understanding that is contrary to what we would want in our own natural flesh because our natural flesh is hostile to God. So then he changes our will, opens our eyes so that we can see and embrace the reality of Christ, which we couldn't before. That's that same picture of when Saul is converted and after his blindness is taken away, the scales fall off of his eyes. That's in many ways a really good picture of what happens to our hearts when the Holy Spirit takes a hold of us and says, you, you're blind, I'm gonna let you see. Oh, wow, I see beauty, I see Christ, I see reality. Oh, no, I'm not part of that picture. Right. And I repent because now my will has been changed. And in that repentance, now I receive Christ, the one that I couldn't see and I didn't like. Now I see and I love and I'm nowhere near him. And so now I find myself desiring him. And that's when Christ says, and when it comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So I come, I repent, I lay it all on the, on the altar before him. He removes my burdens. He takes away my death and gives me life. And now, I'm, not only did I die with him on, on the cross, I'm raised with him in his resurrection to a new way of living life. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Acts is these changed hearts, changed desires, leading to changed perspectives, changed thinking, changed living, so that everything that comes out of that is a kinetic kind of faith that is in action, it's in motion, because I can't just sit here in an ivory tower, twiddling my thumbs, contemplating my navel, and saying, oh, you know, Jesus is everything, you know, so he's gonna speak to me directly, which is, you know, I'm going to go off on a whole other tangent. We're already over time. You know, the, the whole Jesus calling garbage that, you know, I'm going to put aside the word because what matters, the word is nice. That's good. It's so cute that God has spoken to me in his word, but I need this personal experience. Mm-hmm. You can't trust your personal experience because you are a flawed individual with a 10 pound head. You know, you, you don't have a big enough brain to be able to process this. God has given us his word to reveal himself. That's his chosen way of of showing us who he is. And if we get away from that, then it's like being on the sea without a rudder. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to go wherever the wind takes us. That's not a good place to be. Well, thank you for reeling it back into the chapter here. I'm sorry if my question made you go off... uh... Off subject. Nothing makes me go off. Well, It provided me with an opportunity and I made that choice. Well, if anybody else has any questions, apparently don't email. <laughs> email questions. Don't email e- questions. Don't email snarkiness. Um, I can I can see you handling snarkiness though. So uh, <laughs> we will stop there for today. Uh, if anybody does have any questions, as always, feel free to send a message on Facebook. Uh, you can email Rich. What's your email again? Is it Pastor Rich? Pastor Rich at reallifeonline.org. Do that. Email something real at reallifeonline.org. Uh, you know, we'll send a carrier pigeon. We'll, we'll get it. You can call the church at 269-756-RLCC. Not, not no guaranteeing that somebody will answer, but leave a message. No, you can leave a message. <laughs> In all likelihood, someone will not answer, but you can leave, leave a, a message. voicemail. And we won't put you on the show if you don't want to be. 
I'm not telling people to leave messages on Anchor anymore. <laughs> That's, that was my goal for 2020. So thank you guys for listening. And do you have anything else? No, just as we go from here, make sure that that you act on what you believe. Because ultimately, you will. You will act on what you believe. And if if you believe it, it will make a difference. If it isn't making a difference, you need to question how significantly, how seriously you're taking it. We will stop there. All right, thank you.